I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Greetings. Today, we have a special guest for you. Dr. Reeder is a 2003 graduate of Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine. After graduation, he practiced as an associate in a small animal general practice for about three years. And during that time, he developed a strong interest in dermatology. So he went on to complete a residency at Animal Dermatology Clinic in Southern California. And in 2008, he became a board-certified veterinary dermatologist. Dr. Reeder is the owner of Lighthouse Veterinary Allergy and Dermatology, which provides dermatology specialty services throughout the southeastern United States. His special interests include allergic disease, immune-mediated skin disease, otitis externa, and dermatopathology. Dr. Reeder, welcome to the podcast. Yay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. Awesome. Awesome to be here. So, Dr. Reeder, what made you choose dermatology? Well, dermatology for me um, kind of has a long course here. I initially wanted to um, go into emergency and critical care. Oh, wow. And I was, uh, I was an orderly at the vet hospital at Colorado State University where I went to, uh, to undergrad there. And so I had the pleasure of working with uh, Wayne Wingfield and Timothy Hackett, um, some, some of the guys who have been around a long time. I think maybe Dr. Wingfield may not even be uh, with us anymore. And then, so I thought I was going to do emergency medicine. And, um, and of course, then when I went to Auburn for vet school, things change, you know, you go through <laughs> yeah. and you, and you think, you know, every class that you have, you, you feel like that's what I want to do. And, uh, you know, whether it's surgery or neurology or whatever, uh, course, it seems like that's the one that we want to do, or at least for me, that was the case. So I uh, really developed more of a dermatology interest, I think, whenever I was going through our clinical rotations. And at the time, I had really, you know, we had great, uh, yeah, we had great professors and, and teachers and instructors. And for me, uh, John McDonald was the dermatologist at the time and was very integral in lots of dermatologists around the country in, in developing their, their interest and forming them into dermatologists. But I talked with Dr. McDonald quite a bit. I took the rotation a couple times. And then I had Dr. McIntyre, Dougie McIntyre yeah. was there as emergency and critical care. And so I really was struggling, you know, which do I really want to do? Right. And then all of a sudden I said, oh, you actually have a life if you go <laughs> in, I mean... in dermatology. So that's true. Yeah. So I said, well, surgery, I don't want to do because then you're going to you're, you're going to have to, you know, be up at three in the morning. And then an emergency and critical care was still interesting because you could be off, you know, on and off, you know, shifts and all that. And but I still enjoy dermatology a little bit more. And so I um, had the opportunity but didn't take it. Um, to do, you know, the standard internship residency path. And, and I, instead, I went back to uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where I was from and uh, practiced at a uh, at just a general practice in town doing actually a lot of reproduction, as oh. it were. Uh, it was a practice that focused a lot on on reproduction uh, for a small animal which I never thought I would ever do. I, I just <laughs> I thought this is crazy. <laughs> What are we doing? We have all these stray animals and animals that need, you know, homes. And so I started doing, uh, started as an associate there. I lasted for about a year. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they say if you have a job, try to stick with it for a year. And that way that gives you some perspective on, on, on how much you do or don't like it. And, and you know, better off to, to stick in there, hang in there. And uh, I moved on from that practice to another general practice. And I thought this is the best practice that I possibly could could be at. You know, it was like the best small animal general practice. Uh, I'd done, I did a ton of ultrasonography. I was doing, you know, uh, percutaneous kidney biopsies and liver biopsies. And we were doing all kinds of really interesting stuff and got really into internal medicine and, and that kind of stuff. And it just so happened at the time 
I, I was taking call the entire time I was working in general practice. We all took took call, mm-hmm. and I I remember that um, that uh, you know there's a there's a clinic there was a clinic in town that had a 24 hour service available, and one weekend I think I just I think I just had massive compassion fatigue or whatever it might be, and I just oh. put my phone on a setting to where when my phone rang, it actually called the emergency clinic <laughs> or had people call them. My I boss mean, was not happy. He yeah. called me uh-huh. and he said, you got to take call, this, you know, all this stuff. So I um, he just really just didn't want to do that forever. I just, I, yeah. I felt like I was trapped. I didn't feel like this is something I want to do forever. And so then I actually applied for a pathology residency and got a pathology residency but then it was so um, not what I was looking for as far as client interaction, because I had had all the client interaction. I had the pet information and interaction with living animals. And, and now all of a sudden I'm going to be at, in front of a microscope the entire day with stacks of slides. And, and it, it just wasn't a good fit for me. I, I, I like people. I like talking. I like that interaction. And, and that's just not something that they were able to provide at least in my mind you know when i was 27 years old or something yeah so um a friend of mine who was a surgeon and is a surgeon at a a specialty practice in in louisville kentucky uh who i used for surgery referrals and things like that and actually got reprimanded for referring cases especially surgical because the the uh practice owner at the place that I was working said, Oh, I can, I can do those, you know, cruciate surgeries or I could do these backs or we could do all this stuff. And I thought, God, I don't, I don't know. So anyway, I talked to the surgeon there and he said, you know, there's this group that are coming in once a month out of Georgia to do this, you know, dermatology service within our practice. And I said, no, I didn't, I didn't know that. He said, maybe you can do like a non-traditional residency or something with them. I know you like dermatology and my, my interest had grown and grown and grown over, over time. The first time I met the dermatologist there, I, I vividly remember him asking me, name three special stains that highlight fungal organisms on histopathology. And I could not answer that question. <laughs> and I felt so dumb. I went home and read the dermatology textbook. I found the answers, you know, and I shadowed him for like three days. So I came back and told him and he wasn't even impressed. He just said, oh, yeah. very good. Good, good for you. <laughs> you know, and, and so ended up, he, he became uh my mentor during my residency, and um, this was my residency with the Animal Dermatology Clinic. So I did my residency with them and then went back to Kentucky and started the first full-time dermatology practice in the state um, in 2008. And then we hired another dermatologist to work there, and she's still there, and, and it's grown. And I had left that group in 2016 and moved down here to Nashville. Few years went by and started Lighthouse Vet Allergy and Dermatology, and and sort of the rest is history with that. But dermatology has been something I was interested in. I think really from the inception of just like having the uh, course with Dr. McDonald, he's hilarious. I mean, he was just a fun, fun guy, good professor, good guy, just hilarious uh, jokes, and you know. And I thought it was so cool at Auburn, you know, a case would be walking by and, and he would stand in the doorway and watch other animals walk by and diagnose them as they walk by. <laughs> and I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, and initially I thought he was just full of beans and, you know, making stuff up like, oh, that dog's got pemphigus foliaceus. That dog's got, you know, uveodermatologic syndrome. That dog's got discoid lupus, you know, and just saying, just saying random na- terms or whatever. And then, you know, as I have grown in, in my uh, dermatology, you know, career and everything, it, you, you kind of get used to seeing stuff over and over and over and just the same presentation, you know, different variations of the same disease process. And you can kind of, kind of figure it out just by looking to some degree, but, you know, somebody at the clinic was like, no, he's like right 80% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. So Pretty cool. I just so I've I've really enjoyed it, and uh, and I don't have to be on call. That's the best. Thing. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the best part. Yeah, the best part right there. Yeah, yeah. Don't have to be on call, and don't you know? Don't have to to work uh, weekends necessarily. Although with owning your business, you're always working. But right. That's, but no, it's that it, is true. 
Yeah, it's good. It's good. We had a career counselor, uh, so a therapist who specialized in career counseling on the podcast a few weeks ago now. Um, We talked about how, you know, there are different areas of interest and different areas of career fit. And so that's a great example of you knowing I have a broad interest in veterinary medicine. I have the ability to do any of these things, but lifestyle-wise, this is more what I want. And so that's, mm-hmm. I think that's a great example. You know, there's so many things, I think, when when people go into veterinary medicine, there's so many opportunities that we don't even think about. There's more than just clinical medicine, even, for veterinary medicine. I mean, there's research. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, you could be, a, a, you know, in the Army Reserves. You can be in the Army because the Army is the only branch that has veterinary, uh, the vet core. And now there's other areas that you can do things, I mean, Air Force, things like that, working dogs. But then you've got all the different research. You've got all the different, you know, academics. Gosh, I, at one point, I was even interested in, in, you know, this may sound terrible to some people, but I was even interested in, in lab animal medicine, you know, and to try to, to, to look at that. And, and how can we uh, develop, you know, n- new medications and new, new therapies and stuff like that. So I was for a, a minute, I, I did a, a just short externship whenever I was in uh, vet school at University of South Alabama and did uh, did a, a lab animal medicine uh, externship. And it was, you know, th- but there's all kinds of stuff you can get involved with with veterinary medicine. I, I mean, I know I know somebody who works in that uh, lab animal s- uh, setting with a Bristol Myers Squibb or something, you know, one of the big pharmaceutical companies and and things you can, you know, you can do consultations. I mean, there's certified vet practice managers. You can uh, just the, the sky's the limit. You can be the author. I mean, you know, it's just it's incredible uh, the amount of different things you can do that I think, you know, just being, hey, I'm going to be hanging my shingle out after four years and just practice, you know, small animal medicine and surgery and, and sort of that James Harriet-esque kind of concept is really great for a lot of people, but then sometimes, like you said, maybe that doesn't fit for what they want to do, you right. know, and so you've got to look at these other opportunities. And so I, I've, I've really tried to, when fe- when people come to visit and everything, I say, you know, this is, this, this profession has so many different opportunities that you can get involved with, but I, I wouldn't trade this for anything. I mean, I, I love doing it. I love it. And if I didn't do this as a profession, I would do something else, probably be a chef, to be honest with you. That's really? my second hmm. thing that I wow. love. Yeah. I almost quit that school my sophomore year. I worked in the, the anatomy department the, my freshman year, and there's some skeleton stuff we did and some casting of a equine hoof that I did and uh, things like that in the anatomy department. Then I worked at Scott Ritchie Research Center, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of connected uh, to the to the uh, clinic at Auburn and uh, did some, you know, genetic research for, uh, with dogs that have hyperthermic uh, myopathy. And um, so like Labradors that have heat, heat stress, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and doing things. And, and I was like, man, I'm just, I'm just burned out. I don't want to do this. You know, so I, I learned, I don't want to do research like that, like bench top <laughs> research right. and micro pipette, everything all day long. Yeah. I, I, Thank you to the people who do that. That's wonderful. That's just, again, I just, I couldn't do it for forever. But I love cooking and, you know, I love just the ability to, to make people happy, you know, at, both with veterinary medicine and, and try to get that human animal bond reconnected again, because nobody wants to sit with a stinky, smelly, nasty dog or cat. But I also like that with cooking too. So I, I still cook a lot. So that would be my job if I wasn't a vet, I think, <laughs> would be a, would be a chef. So Awesome. <laughs> well, now in the in that fifteen year period of time, a, lo- a long time where you've been seeing all these dermatology cases, mm-hmm. you know, are there certain things that maybe you see them repeatedly that have kind of become maybe pet peeves for you, or maybe I don't even like that word exactly, but maybe things that you that you see and you're like, man, I wish more people knew this. I probably have more pet peeves with myself than I do with other people. Um, you know, I think I think we're all our own worst enemy at times uh, with things that uh, you forget or whatnot. I, I and and I guess this is more for you know cases that we see from uh, referring veterinarians, and when we see them, it's like, oh, I wish this was done before they came in, or or sure. what have you. 
two two things I think uh, would be pet peeves. Really, one is uh, cytology. You know, you've got to do cytology. It's so incredibly important, and we're not just talking ear swab cytology, but actual skin cytology. It's hard to do. I didn't do it when I was in general practice. I didn't know how to do it very well. You know, we were taught. I think somebody along the way said, you know, use sticky tape and put down some, put down some uh, of the counter stain, the purple from the Diffquick type stuff, and then put the tape on top of it. And then you can see yeast and things occasionally, but you can't really see inflammatory cells. You can't really see bacteria that well. I don't like tape preps. That's not my thing. Um, and, and probably because where I was trained, we never did them really. I mean, it was just not something we did. So I, I'll use the slide itself and then use it to scrape along uh, dry or, you know, uh, any kind of like purulent, hemopurulent exudate or whatnot, or rupture pustules and papules and crusts and all that. The crunchy parts. The crunchy, yeah, <laughs> the good bits. Yep. You got to deglaze the pan, you know, yeah, <laughs> you got to get the stuff. Wash it right on there. Yep. And yeah. so uh, cytology is really important. Um, it, it's hard to, to uh, it's better to show and tell versus just to tell somebody how to do it. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a technique that is important. And there may be people out there that are like, I'm doing cytology all the time. But honestly, I, I consult as a dermatopathology treatment consultant. I, I do that on the side for Antec and I have for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. And, um, and so I talk to people all over the country. I talk to veterinarians in you know, foreign countries, um, wherever Antec is offered. And cytology is a huge thing. It's, it's a missing part of a lot of, uh, of our case workups that, that people will, will send in. So that was, that's a big one. Uh, that would probably be number one. Number two would be antibiotic therapy, whether it's used or not, and how long to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Alexander Fleming in 1941 or something said, too low of a dose and too short of a course antibiotic is going to lead to resistance. Well, guess what? Penicillin resistance is out there, man. It's huge, right? You've got yeah. methicillin resistant staph species. You've got resistant pseudomonas. You've got resistant enterococcus. There, it's a huge problem. Uh, across the world in in uh, veterinary and human medicine. And there's just some really bad stuff. And so it's it's kind of like shooting an elephant with a BB gun. You're just going to make it mad. You're not going to do any good if you take one <laughs> pill. And right. now that's hard. That that, that also, uh, it, it, you know, veterinarians not, aren't not always the ones to blame, but it's pet owners who also have to be compliant. And probably when they come to a specialist, most all of our cases are coming from a primary care veterinarian. They've referred them. And so they've, they're usually folks who are willing to go the extra mile and, and be compliant. And, but I know having been in general practice and not just doing, you know, uh, you know, vet school, internship, residency, ivory tower mentality. It's just, hey, you know, we've got people who they can't afford antibiotics. They can't, they don't want to give them. They're not, you know, great pet owners. That's shocking. I know that people sometimes <laughs> shouldn't have pets, but you know what I mean? There's people who just aren't the best, but if we don't dose it for a long enough period of time and, and try to use a, a, a an antibiotic that's meant for the condition, then, then we're going to not win the battle. And so uh, I typically, you know, I'll tell owners and and our staff knows this, too. They'll start quoting the physiology (laughs) and stuff. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, skin only gets 4% of the cardiac output. You know, what's cardiac output? Okay, cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume, you know. So (laughs) it's like what. So basically, you know, the epidermis is completely devoid of any blood vessels, lymphatic vessels, anything that that those four cells that make up now it's thicker than four cells, but you've got, you know, the basal layer and then you've got the granular layer, the spinous layer, the, you know, uh, the cornified layer, you've got all these layers of, of skin cells. There's no blood vessels in there. And it's interesting because a lot of folks either weren't taught that or have forgotten that. And so it takes a lot longer for skin to show improvement. I usually will start with a 30 day course of antibiotics which is a lot longer than most most folks have given it to their pet whether they've you know whether they were prescribed that many days of an antibiotic by their primary vet or not 
it just, you know, sometimes it's not something that they've, um, they've gone that long with. So those are the two kind of pet peeve things. Cytology, you've got to do it. Antibiotics, if you're using them, make sure that they are a high enough dose for a long enough period of time, because that's going to lead to better treatment outcomes. And uh, oftentimes that pyoderma that's just not going away, it may not be resistant. Um, it may be actually just, you know, needing a higher dose and topical therapies necessary too. That's not as much of a problem. I don't think there's so many out there. And, and I think people are using those relatively frequently at this point. But so those are the things that I would, you know, kind of maybe like to see more of um, yeah. as far as that. As far as the antibiotic duration, would you advocate for a minimum of four-week antibiotic treatment for any pyoderma case in general practice? Yeah, I mean, so that's a good question. Any any pyoderma case that you have, do you do four weeks immediately? If if it's widespread mm-hmm. and, and you can't treat it top, meaning that if it's not just localized like on the elbow, for example, and you're seeing papules or pustules or crusts and all that, all over a dog or cat, then I would go for four weeks. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm going to be honest that in general practice, and I, I know you've been in general practice, so you know, too, mm-hmm. I mean, that is what we see, I would say, most often. It's not like, yeah, here is one epidermal cholerette that my dog has that I'm worried about. It's like mm-hmm. they've come to you when the dog has no hair anymore and is just covered in crusts and is right. pruritic and that means itchy. Sorry, we have some uh, people who aren't vets who listen to yeah. here. But, no, that's fine. Um, so, yeah. you know, they're just poor. The poor animal is just looking rough. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I see the most yeah. uh, as an initial presentation. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's super common. I think, you know, at this point, dermatologic issues are outweighing any other problem. Uh, as the most common reason that a pet owner or a pet comes to the vet is because of some dermatology issue, whether it's it's bumps and lumps, whether it's scratching, whether it's ear infections, you know, rashes, that kind of stuff. Those are all big time, big time problems. And we're seeing a lot of those. And, and obviously, there's tons of new therapies out to help, you know, mitigate and treat those problems, too. I mean, there's a lot of new therapies that are out and coming out, um, and they continue to be developed. So there's uh, a big need, you know, a big need for it. And definitely, you know, it's it's a it's a huge issue. We, I know we we see this from young dogs and cats to, to older ones. I mean, they're you know, and they, and things can develop just about any time too. I don't think people realize that, but you know, allergies especially they can develop at any age. They don't have to be. There's a threshold phenomenon. You know, that there's a glass ceiling, essentially, where the immune system that we that we all are fortunate enough to have um, and, and is very complex, um, it, it gets irritated and it gets irritated enough at some point it just breaks through that glass ceiling. And so I often will tell pet owners, you know, why, did, why does my dog have allergies now at six years of age and it's been living in the same house, it's been eating the same food, it's been having the same environment and and I'll tell them, you know, it, it's kind of like a person. We have a threshold of, of how much you can take. You know, it's sort of like being in traffic. A little bit of traffic might be okay. But if you're in traffic and then people are honking at you and then somebody's, you know, you know, doing goofy things and driving, it might just push you over the edge. You know, you may you may just get really frustrated and angry about it potentially. So that's the threshold that we all have. And then finally, it just kind of breaks through. But uh, so just about any age, we, we see these, these skin problems and definitely allergies are, no, are, are number one. There's no question about that. Allergies are number one as far as a problem for, you know, dogs and cats, especially. Do you feel like allergies are something that has gotten worse in the last decade or so? Uh, you know, that's a good question. If allergies are getting worse I don't know if that's truly the case or not. And the reason I say that is because there's such a much better awareness now, mm-hmm. I think, than, than we had, you know, 10 years ago. I know when I was in general practice, we would euthanize dogs and cats because people couldn't deal with it anymore. They were frustrated. They were fed up. They have spent 
the amount of money that that was for them reasonable to spend. And of course, everybody's got their own reasonable amount. Right. And and they said, I'm, I'm done with it. I just I I, I want to get rid of this problem. This is not a, a good quality of life is is was the issue. You know, this is quality of life for this particular animal is terrible. And we just got to do something. Nothing we're doing is working. We need to euthanize it. And that's still the case. I mean, one of the most common, the two biggest reasons why dogs and cats are relinquished is for behavior problems and dermatology issues. It's very chronic, frustrating type stuff. And, you know, I, I do think there's some increase in it. I don't know why that that is, though. I don't know if that's just a normal cycle of the planet where, hey, you know, we're going to see it not be as much of a problem and you know, a hundred years or, or, or maybe we're going to see it worsening. I, I don't, I'm not really sure if, if that's um, just a cycle or, or not, or we're just more, more aware of it. Um, you know, and especially now some veterinary drug manufacturers even have commercials and things online, you know, for mm-hmm. different products and uh, dermatology type products. And I think what that does is certainly fuels the it fuels the um, concern for owners. And the other thing that we have now, right, is the um, the, the tracking devices that dogs can wear. Uh, well, mostly dogs. I mean, I guess if, if you had cats, they'll wear it too. But, the, you know, the little collar attachment tracking devices are those uh, gyroscopes that are in there that initially were sort of for how much how much is your pet exercising during the day, that kind of thing. Now they've made algorithms for those tracking type devices, calculations that tell you if maybe your dog is needs to go see the vet because it's having an increase in itching. And so I think part of that too is, is helping veterinary medicine to identify these problems maybe earlier uh, versus, mm-hmm. versus later. Part of that too gets to something called the hygiene hypothesis. So if you get really you know, you're amped up at night and those folks who are, you know, maybe listening and they, they can't sleep. Uh, maybe you're working an overnight shift and you're like, I need something to go to sleep. Look up the hygiene hypothesis and start reading it and you'll probably fall asleep. <laughs> it's pretty, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty boring. Um, but it's, it's really good information. And basically what it says is that the cleaner we are, the more problems we can have with our immune system. And it's sort of like, you know, let your kids eat dirt because mm-hmm. if you don't, your adaptive immune response. So you've got an innate immune response, right? Which is like the skin barrier and all these little things that everybody has. That's the innate, you're just born with it. The adaptive immune response, all the antibodies and things like that, you develop a person, an animal develops those at a very, very young age. And that's where it goes through a conditioning cycle, through all the lymph nodes and everything. And you know, your body knows not to attack itself at that point. You know, if it does, then those antibodies are removed and you make antibodies to all these different types of invaders and, and, and pollens and things can, can be an invader. So it, what has happened, there was a paper that was done, um, I think it was 2008. I think it came out. It was, an, it was a veterinary dermatology journal article. And they showed that dogs that were housed in a area like in more of a rural setting, not in like a city, were less allergic. Dogs that went on walks more frequently outside were less allergic. Dogs that were not adopted at an early age, meaning they were, I think they were at least 12 weeks old or something, not like six weeks old, and they were allowed to live with their litter mates and everything Mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. They were less allergic. So that hygiene hypothesis kind of, it's showcased there because they're saying, Okay, if you're outside, if you're you're not getting oh, they were also not bathed as regularly. The dogs that were oh. bathed more regularly as as puppies were more allergic. Mm. So then you kind of say, what do you, okay, what do you do? You don't you know you don't adopt a dog till it's what a year old. You don't get the Christmas puppy anymore. You don't wash your dog because it stinks. And you know, <laughs> I mean, so I don't really know if 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 that's going to change anything other than to say. I, we take better care, we think anyway, you know, that we're taking better care of animals and having them inside and sleeping with us and washing them. And, you know, basically a lot of animals are eating human food. People cook for their dogs and cats. And there's some diets out there that are almost like human grade type stuff. And I think that all that stuff is is great. I mean, I, I love that. But, but also question mark, are we 
doing something to influence an immune response that is not intended, mm-hmm. you know? And so you go, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe we are promoting allergies unintentionally and did, didn't even know we were doing it. Um, so, and that's true for people. The hygiene hypothesis is a human medical type theory. And mainly that's coming from people who live in cities versus who live on farms tend to be more allergic if you live in a city type area versus farm area because you're just not outside working and and getting exposed to all the stuff more regularly. Um, you're you're getting these intermittent high level exposures, but you're in an apartment all the time, you know, and, and that's you just don't interact with the same environment as that person who lives on a farm. So. So anyway, those are some things that I feel like maybe can contribute to the fact that we're seeing higher cases of allergies. Yeah, I was kind of thinking of stuff like that, but also I feel like some of the breeds that kind of are predisposed to allergies seem to be more popular now than in the last 10, 20 years. So I wonder mm-hmm. if that kind of contributes to. Yeah, I mean, the breeds, breed predilection is huge. I mean, there's definitely a lot of them out there that'll have allergy type problems in their lines. Um, and we see, we see tons of shepherds, you know, we see tons of, uh, obviously, you know, like Labradors, golden retrievers, and everything's a doodle. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, unfortunately. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I have a standard poodle and she's totally fine and is great. But when they start mixing things together, I, I'm, I'm sure that probably, it doesn't maybe lend itself to what cattle the cattle industry calls hybrid vigor you know where you're (laughs) you're getting a benefit by having two different things come together i don't maybe no offense to doodle uh owners doodles are cute they're great dogs but uh sometimes we do see a lot of those you know as well so i know we talked a little bit about uh antibiotics and cytology is there anything else that you wish general practitioners would do before a referral or would avoid doing prior to the referral? Is there anything else to do before a referral? Really, the cytology and the antibiotic therapy, if there's like a, an active pyoderma, those are really big ones. Interestingly enough, so this, is, this fits right into to something, that, which is this uh, DVM360 article, which was a June 1st um, article that came out talking about the earlier dermatology referral and the rewards that can provide to the primary care practitioner, the one, the the person who's referring that case, actually getting a better perception from the pet owner. And it it actually stated that, I guess there was like 80%, 82% of people who, uh, these are pet owners, this was a survey that was done um, through the American College of Veterinary Dermatology, that they found that that those people who went to a dermatologist had an 82% satisfaction and increase in their comp- confidence in their veteran in their primary care veterinarian they felt better about their primary care veterinarian when they offered referral earlier and and then i think they said something like 60 around 60% 50-something percent said that they were actually more confident and satisfied with their primary care veterinarian when they were referred to a dermatologist. So it's, it's one of those things. What, what, what I get in my end um, is that I wish my veterinarian had told me about you sooner. Mm-hmm. That's, where, that's what we get. And okay. we get that a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot. Um, even from very high referring practices. Now, we have some practices that never refer cases to us. And we have practices that referred lots of cases to us, but we do often from the client side of things, we hear that, gosh, I, I really wish that you, I wish you would have told my vet that you were here, you know, that you offered this service because I'm, I'm really excited about this, but now I'm kind of not happy with my vet as much because I, I never heard about you. I had to look you up online or I had to ask my vet for a referral. My vet didn't even ask me. And, and I think in this article, it even said that like 39% of people were aware of a referral dermatology appointment, but didn't, they weren't asking about it. So people know about this. They're educated in it. And whenever they're referred earlier, it was a better, just a better outcome. 
they found that actually an, another article Don Logus did, um, she's a dermatologist down in Maitland, Florida. Great. She's awesome. Did a, did a study. This was uh, years ago looking at ear disease and, and finding that dogs that had chronic otitis had better outcomes when their primary care vet collaborated with a, with a board-certified dermatologist within six months of the treatment. And they found that uh, the longer the patient had chronic otitis externa that was treated by the primary care before referral led to more recurrences and longer periods of otitis, which led to more patient discomfort and owner dis- distress and owner expenses. So it's interesting how that can come into, into play, I guess, with, with this kind of a, a you know, situation. Because, and the reason I bring this up is because dermatology is the second to lowest referral specialty in veterinary medicine. Really? It's second, yeah. Wow. It's second to, it's second to, the lowest is behavior. Behavior I can is see the behavior, very yeah. yeah. It's the lowest one that that people uh, get referred to. Dermatology is not far is not a, a far cry behind that, huh. and so it's interesting. And I I think some of that has to do with all the products that are on the market, and we think that we can treat you know every every dog, cat, horse <laughs> if you do horses, you know. And and there's. I think there's sort of a humility to it. You know, with, with dermatology, what's interesting to me, I mean, cause I was in general practice and I thought I know what I, I thought I knew what I was doing. And I'll give you a, a case example here. I thought, so I had a Labrador retriever come into me and it was scratching like crazy. It was super itchy. And this just to let you know, this is before I was in dermatology. <laughs> this is before <laughs> I was a dermatologist. This is me being Hey, I graduated summa cum laude from Auburn. I was fourth in my class. I was the only one who didn't have an undergraduate degree. I got into vet school after three years. I felt like I was a super smart guy. Okay. Like I, I was, I pumped myself up. And so when I was in practice, I was very young. I mean, I graduated vet school at 24. Like I, so I just really, I, I, I felt like I knew everything. All right. And so I felt like I could do everything because I felt like I knew all this stuff. I knew all this information. And you know, it turns out I didn't. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> this profession will, will, will humble a person, I think. And it's a good thing to be humble. And so um, definitely have grown from that, that position. But this is about like a year out, out of vet school. And I remember I allergy tested, uh, blood allergy tested. And I can talk about that, too, if you're interested in, in talking about different forms of, of that. It's but on the list. <laughs> Yeah, I, I might just get to, to I might get to everything. Yeah, everything. It'll be a four hour podcast. Um, but I allergy tested this black Labrador and I, I had done it through VARL because that's what we used at Auburn and, and Dr. McDonald still consults for them and stuff like that. So but at any rate, I had done that. I had spent their money. I had put this dog on allergy immunotherapy. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was trying to make this dog's life better and try to help these people with their dog's incredible intense itchiness. And about two weeks after this dog was on immunotherapy, the owner calls me and says, my dog is itchier than ever. And now my kids have sores on their body. And so I said, well, you need to, let's bring your dog back. Let's see what's going on. I had not scraped that dog. And this is in the days before the isoxazoline compounds like Semperica, <laughs> yeah. Brevecto, Nexgard, Cordelio, all that. And really, I mean, we just had like Frontline and, and, and maybe you know, HeartGuard. That was kind of the thing. Mm-hmm. And so that dog had scabies. Whoops. Mm-hmm. So to try to, to try to work myself backwards and go, oh, yeah, but it's allergy tests is really, I mean, it kind of, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't work so well. So, Ew. you know, it, <laughs> it was a humbling experience yep. for me mm-hmm. just to go, I, I really, I, I don't know everything. I, I mean, and I felt like I knew nothing at that time. And then when you go to a residency, you're like, man, I really didn't know a lot of stuff. And boy, did I miss things. Like I missed a lot of stuff and I was only in general practice for three years and I'm like, good night, all these things that I missed that I saw and now I'm seeing them for the second or third or fourth time, you know, as a resident, I'm going, oh, how many people out there are treating these cases and they're not, they're not what they think they are. And to recognize that and in dermatology, that's what we do. I mean, we, we are using our eyes to, to do the, 
to do our work for us, our eyes to say, hey, I think it has this condition and, and the history of the animal and all that stuff, too, to then come up with a, uh, you know, uh, a differential diagnosis list and things like that. But then also using that information to guide us to our next diagnostic step. Maybe it's a biopsy. Maybe it is skin testing, you know, allergy testing. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's the, the four week antibiotic therapy. Maybe it's topical therapy. Maybe, you know, but. It's just really interesting. And then I'll talk to vets a lot who have been doing, you know, who have been in general practice for like 30 plus years. And they're like, man, that's a that's the first time I've ever seen this. And I'm thinking, <laughs> no, I think that's the first time you've ever diagnosed it. Like a biopsy came in and now I'm doing some treatment recommendations for a, a dog that has cutaneous lymphoma or pemphigus or UV or, you know, VKH, which is UVO dermatologic syndrome or zinc responsive dermatosis or what, you know, whatever. There's a thousand different diseases and they'll say, that's the first time I've seen it. And, and my thought is it's probably the first time it's probably the first time you've diagnosed it. I'm yeah. sure it's seen you many times before. It's sort of, it's sort of like the mountain <laughs> line in the, in the, in the, uh, in the mountains, you know, you know, you're hiking out in the mountains, you know, they see you well before you see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that disease process, you've seen it. You just haven't recognized it. And again, that's where my job as a, as a clinical dermatologist is supposed to be helpful to the primary care practitioner is like, I'm, I'm like this tool in your back pocket that you can pull out and use from time to time. Happy to help out and, and do that. Um, the thing that dermatology that it's a little bit difficult is that we we don't we're not a we're not a uh, treat and street kind of specialty where surgery might be more. Yeah, you got a cruciate ligament tear. We need to treat this thing. We're going to do surgery and then we you know treat it and uh, see you on a recheck, do an X-ray, and then we never see you again. Dermatology is very involved with case management and outcomes of treatment and all that it it just has to be that's the the type of cases that we that we get that's it's it they're management type cases there's there's not that many out there that are totally curable with the exception of things like demodex now if you're on <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. one of those flea and tick medicines which is awesome oh man mm -hmm. it is so much yeah. better than the than the days when we had to put that dog on ivermectin orally for yeah. forever or <laughs> right oh my right. god i can't yeah. believe we start to do that that was so yeah. terrible <laughs> it was it was tough it, mm -hmm. and you talk about compliance man that mm -hmm. stuff it, you know man yeah you, you just uh, yeah things have changed i mean that's been a game changer <laughs> yes. you know we rarely see that anymore i had a case of actually uh generalized demeticosis and it was really bad pododemeticosis in like a 15 year old dog um this was probably three weeks ago and it was not on flea and tick medicine because the owner didn't want to give it poison, so to Correct. speak. Yeah. And so I uh, then I said, I said, no, you, you, you need to do it. Like, that's the treatment for this. Lo and behold, man, that dog is thousand percent better. And, and sometimes with some sometimes with the referrals too, it just we, you know, we'll support the primary care practitioner. We'll support that person who has sent us the case and say, actually, you know, you know, your vet did all the right things. I agree with what they're doing. I agree with what they've said to you and they just need to hear it from somebody else. And that that's helpful too, because that person may, they were just ready to walk out the door and never come back. And now they go, Oh, my vet actually, it's, that's awesome. Like I'm really thankful for them and they mm -hmm. know what they're doing. And it, and it instills their confidence back, I think to the primary care practitioner. So they don't, vet hop to five different places and then finally, you know, come in and, and, and all that. So I don't remember where we were, but that's, okay. <laughs> that's where, that's where, I, at any rate. Well, you, hmm. you mentioned uh, earlier, Dr. McDonald, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, of course I went to Auburn and so I had Dr. McDonald sort of at the very end of his tenure before Dr. Kenneth took over the mm -hmm. dermatology right. service. But Dr. McDonald's, you know, one of his many sayings was, Tape, scrape, pluck, smear. Tape, scrape, pluck, smear. So he's <laughs> right. like, if you're not doing those things, you're going to miss stuff. And he was right. right. <laughs> he was right. Yeah. Along those lines, do you think it's valuable for general practice to do some sort of isoxazoline trial 
prior to them sending to you because then that way they can rule out demodicosis and, and sarcoptes. Well, and then fleas. I mean, I can't even believe the number of people that bring their allergic or itchy dogs into me. And I'm like, so I think it's the fleas that I physically see with my <laughs> eyes. And they're like, no, right. my dog has never had right. a flea. And I'm like, but do you see all of these ones right here in this area? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. No, you put them there. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. They yeah. got them in no, the they, lobby. Right. They did. Right. Yeah. That cat gave them to Sure, them. sure, sure. No. So, yes, I do think that. Um, so before they come in, it, it it wouldn't be bad. Most of the cases that we see are already on semi-soxazoline compound anyway. But if they're not, and we think that it's flea allergy dermatitis or flea bite hypersensitivity, as it's now called, that's something that would be easy to to definitely put them on if they're not already taking that. You know, but remember, fleas, it's going to take three months to get them out of the environment because you've got all the life cycle and what the, the, you can't kill the pupa, really, except for vacuuming them up. Once those pupa hatch to adults, then you're, you know, then you're better off, really. You could always, you know, use the flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty sure. Make it from orbit. <laughs> yeah, you can use the flamethrower. That works yeah. pretty well. Yeah. 10 out of 10. But, uh, yeah, that's helpful. I, I, I certainly don't mind people doing diet trials beforehand. That, that's something that is totally fine with me, you know, and, and we can talk about different diets. I know that was something that we were, that's in the potential discussion topic and things. So those are great. Those are handy um, to be able to, to do all that stuff. Um, ultimately, what I like to do, though, is whenever we determine a test that needs to be run, it, it would be helpful for us to be able to run it so that we can get the most out of it with regards to Gosh, there's just some there, there's some specific things that we want to do. You know what I mean? Like for culturing, for example, the way that we culture with the, the spots that we choose to biopsy the all the stuff. So we in just in dermatology in general, and I'm speaking for the 250 dermatologists around the country. What's not as helpful to us is for a primary care practitioner to go ahead and do things like I'm going to go ahead and biopsy it. And then I'll send it to the dermatologist for them to interpret the results and all that. Because at that point, really, that, that's not so helpful for us because it may not be the right site that we want to biopsy. Again, this is just coming on a lot of clinical experience and years and years of seeing stuff and knowing where to biopsy specifically and, and all those things. So, you know, it, it's that would almost be like, hey, I'm going to send my, you know, this dog with a cruciate surgery to you, but I'm going to already have shaved the leg. I'm already going to have prepped the site and I'm already make the skin incision for you. And you're like, that, that's not helpful. <laughs> you know? So, and I don't want it, to, it's not trying to be mean about it or anything like that. It's just trying to be realistic of, you know, I've, I've, I've biopsied a, a dog. Oh gosh. It was probably last year at this point. And it had been biopsied by two other primary care vets and she went to two different places, not the same practice. And dog biopsied, biopsied again. And I said, based on what I'm seeing on cytology, I think your dog needs to be biopsied because I'm pretty confident it has cutaneous lymphoma. And I biopsied it, sent it to the people who I use and who I like. And ultimately, it came back as cutaneous lymphoma. The dog died four months later. Mm. So if it had been caught potentially a, a year before and this is talking about earlier referral and things, that lady's never going back to those veterinarians. I mean, she gets a new dog. She's not going to go back to the places that biopsied it and didn't get the right diagnosis. So we're trying to have the most impact for that animal's life and well-being as we possibly can. So the, the earlier, the better. And the other thing with early referrals, you know, we get pretty booked out. I mean, I think everybody has seen COVID um, create a surge in, in caseload. And so when we get booked out, you know, we can't get people in the next, next day or the next week, potentially. So if they are discussed at least, Hey, we could refer you to dermatology, then they could get in at an appropriate time versus now I really have got, you got to get in. Like it's got to be done tomorrow. And I'm going, I, I don't have any, I don't have any appointment space. There's just no way we're going to have to kick other people out to make that one fit in. 
or we're going to have to, you know, quadruple book our day and then the technicians are going to yell at me. <laughs> it's going to be a bad, it's going to be a bad day. So, so that's the other thing too. But so those, those tests, some of those tests aren't as helpful to do beforehand. You know, blood allergy testing is not always helpful beforehand because it's like, you know, spending the owner's money and then not knowing what to, it's like doing blood work and not knowing how to interpret the blood work. If that makes any sense, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, maybe, eh, maybe don't, don't worry. Don't, don't, don't worry about doing that. And, and so, and what happens there is that the pet owner's perception to the veterinarian now is it's all about the cash. And that's their perception. The client perception is that my veterinarian only ran these tests to put some money in their pocket. And that that's not the perception that we want to have in the veterinary field. We don't want to have the perception of we're just there to swindle people out of money. And, you know, because now, now people aren't going to bring their pets in at all. And that's not really what we want to do. So I, I think there's some things to do before referral to consider referral earlier. Um, I know I, I I did. I mean, after I made that mistake with the dog and the scabies and it really wasn't allergies, I mean, I, I started referring a lot more to dermatology because I go, I, I don't know all this stuff. And it's okay not to know. It's okay to ask for help. Believe it or not, asking for help allows you to learn. I mean, it really does. So it, not, not a lot of us want to do that, you know, and, and not a lot of us want to say, I, I, need, I need help. And, um, and, you know, and we're talking about with cases here, but that, that could apply to anything, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. That's true. And uh, it, it's really tough because this is a, it's a difficult profession sometimes to be in and um, just, just asking for help. So and I'm, I'm here to help people. I, I talk to people all the time over the phone. You know, they'll send me emails. They'll send me pictures. They uh, veterinarians will do this. And then I'll, I'll be as helpful as I can. And sometimes I'll say, hey, I think it's just best to take a look at it in person you know, and, and, and go that route and be able to see them. And, and so that works out, you know, pretty well for, I, I think for the client and for the primary practitioner, because they learn, then you learn from it. I know for like surgery, I learned a ton when I was re- in general practice referring to surgery because I, oh, that's what was going on. You know, I had no idea or internal medicine. Oh yeah. Okay. So then you start you know, you keep learning. I think some, sometimes, so many times veterinarians, you know, we graduate vet school and it's like one and done. Like I, I learned everything and now I'm, I'm done. And, and I, I kind of had that mindset, honestly, when I first had graduated, uh, I'm done. I'm done, you know, with, with learning the hardcore stuff. I, I got my degree. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. Of course you had continuing education, but it's not the same, you know, as when you're in school. And ultimately, I think after a while, people just start making things up. (laughs) Veterinarians are just incredible about making stuff up. Oh, the alkaline phosphatase is elevated. It's probably a 10-year-old dog that's kind of chubby. It's probably, you know, bone remodeling. I'm like, no, no, it's not. (laughs) It's because it has Cushing's disease. (laughs) It's because its liver is having a problem and it's shouting at you. (laughs) It's probably not normal. So I think there's, I hear that a lot, a lot of different things, you know, we're, we, we just, just make stuff up, you know, it's, uh, but, uh, but it, anyway, I'll get Alf on a soapbox and I just won't ever come back. So I'm, I'm going to rain it. <laughs> okay. So Dr. Reader, uh, we're going to do rapid fire veterinary dermatology question answering. I'm, I'm getting good. a thumbs up. I'm good. We'll okay. It. In what circumstances um, are blood allergy tests appropriate compared to intradermal allergy testing? Uh, two two things. Big one is if the dog can't be, or dog cat can't be sedated. Okay. We use Dextamator um, almost always for that. So if they can't be sedated, second reason is if the owner doesn't want the animal shaved. Okay. I mean that that would be that. Those are the only two reasons. Skin testing gets about five times more information. It's a better it's considered gold standard. I still, I, I still feel that way too. Okay. So I'm just going to re- repeat back what you said real quick. Skin allergy testing, intradermal testing is the gold standard. And you get about five times more information than from that as compared to a blood test. Yes, correct. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Is using a blood sample to test for food allergies valid in any way? No. Do you want me to expand on that? 
Uh, no, I, I like just the no. I'm fine with that. You go, no, go ahead and expand on it if you'd like to. But I'm just gonna, uh, I'm just gonna record that as a soundbite and just no. put, just drive around playing yeah. it over a loudspeaker. No, 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 don't do it. Don't waste the money. Um, it just hasn't been very well validated that it's, it's, um, it's helpful to determine an, an actual hypersensitivity. I mean, that's the, that's the, easiest way to explain it same thing is true with salivary samples and hair samples and that kind of stuff those are those are even less valid those are really really inaccurate oh man we could spend all this talking about the hair samples and that (laughs) there there's some uh that at least one study where they sent in like clippings of stuffed animal fur and like fake fur and they came back with all the stuff it was like that's (laughs) not Oh, yeah. your stuffed yeah. unicorn is allergic to all of these things. Like, no, <laughs> that's not correct. Yeah, yeah, and those are hard to draw blood from, too. <laughs> right, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> stuffed unicorn. Okay, so for diagnosing food allergy, we are going to use which test? The the stuff that comes in the bag. Okay. Yeah, food we're gonna do. Trial. We're gonna do. We're doing a food trial. How yeah. long should food trials last? Okay, I'm going to give you the numbers here. I'll give you the numbers. So if you do a diet trial, uh, eight weeks is ideal. At four weeks, if a dog is food allergic, if they are actually food allergic, at four weeks, you will find 50% of those. At six weeks, you'll find 80% of them. And at eight weeks, you'll find 90% if they are food allergic. So I always say go for eight weeks. I usually will tell people, there may be a response in four weeks. The normal set of cases, if a dog is food allergic, specifically for dogs, if it's food allergic, it in 70% of the cases are going to have GI problems as well. So they're going to have vomiting, diarrhea, loose stools, excessive flatulence, uh, tons of stomach grumbling, three or more bowel movements a day, even if they're normal. So there's going to be GI stuff in a vast majority of them. So if they don't have that, I, I, I may not be looking at food, to be honest, but if, if they owners want to blame food, it's an easy thing to blame. Everybody thinks, oh, it's got to be this chicken and it's got to be whatever. Um, but ultimately, um, yeah, eight weeks is ideal for the diet trial. Yeah, but not three years. We have people who have given <laughs> have been on hydrolyzed protein okay. diets well, for three good. years, and it's like, wow, it's <laughs> a long time. Right. It's a long time for something that's not working. Yikes. Yeah, right. So one of the barriers that I have come up against in patients that have non-seasonal pruritus, they're young. It's like, you know, we really need to eliminate a food allergy. Mm-hmm. is people saying, well, I've changed the diet multiple times. Well, can't I just buy whatever food that has ostrich in it or something, you know, some kind of mm-hmm. off-the-wall thing right. from up the road? Yep. How have you encountered that resistance, and how have you navigated it? Well, for me, if, if a dog doesn't have the GI symptoms and they've done the diet changing around and they haven't done a specific hydrolyzed protein diet trial, prescription diet type stuff and have, you know, fed nothing else other than that. If, if, but, but if they've done some of their own type diet trials and it doesn't have any GI symptoms and then, then oftentimes I will put them in more of an atopic environmental allergy category, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It, it just kind of depends on each individual case and you kind of have to feel them out a little bit, but Usually what I'll tell people, if I really want them to do a diet trial and I said, that's great that those things, you've done a good job. You've identified something that could be a problem, which is really cool. We are going to take that one step further and go even to a more uh, strict diet and evaluate it just one last time and see if this makes a change or not. So if you're a primary care practitioner and that you want to do that diet trial, I would say, okay, we're going to do this, this last step. If we're still having problems, I want you to maybe go see this dermatologist, you know, cause we, we're going to, we're kind of exhausting some of these things that, that may be going on. And I feel like for maybe this environmental situation that, you know, if you want to do the testing, then that, that's something that we could, we could set you up with. That's probably how I would I would address it rather than doing specific diet, you know, over the counter diets and stuff like that. 
Um, so you either have hydrolyzed protein diet or you have novel protein diet to determine if a dog's food allergic or a cat's food allergic. Um, so you're getting rid of whatever they're allergic to. It's it's being removed from their diet, and we just simply don't know exactly what they're allergic to. So it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint. You know that's why we do more hydrolyzed protein diets versus novel protein. At least I do. Some dermatologists still do novel protein, but it's hard to determine what they might be allergic to or what their cross reactive. Um, allergy might be meaning that if you're allergic to you know to beef, you might also be allergic to venison. They have a phosphoglutamutase. They have the same enzyme in the meat, so in, it looks similar to the body. You know, it's kind of eh, they're both circular kind of thing. So they, you know, I'm just going to attack it. You know, that's something that's it's tough. Diet's tough. It's 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 a difficult situation to a conversation to have with owners. No question. It's it's very very tough. Um, but. Um, I always tell people that they, they're doing the right thing. They've, they've been doing an excellent job. And if we want to evaluate it, you know, one last time, let's do hydrolyzed protein. Let's go full steam ahead. If that's not working, hey, we're going to send you to a dermatologist or, and, and, and then just, you know, you know, pass it on over for some additional help and, and management. If you really need to do a food trial, do mm-hmm. you do a cold turkey switch or do you mix the foods together? Well, if it's hydrolyzed, I always use hydrolyzed when I do a diet trial, so I just cold turkey switch it. Okay. Um, some hydrolyzed diets will cause an osmotic diarrhea, and I always warn people about Ew. that. Meaning, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, kind of like putting sugar on a strawberry and it leaches the water out, except <laughs> right. this, the sugar is in your intestines and it's leaching the, you know. So you get diarrhea. That's, that's particularly true with the higher, the, the, more, um, the more hydrolyzed it is, the smaller the protein molecule, you get more surface area makes sense right you can you can fit a basketball in a bucket but you can fit like a thousand bbs and air marbles in a bucket right the surface area is much greater so it's going to draw more water out so if we had a single amino acid diet it, you're, they're going to be having explosive diarrhea mm. and that's what happens with kids actually when they go to a single a single amino acid therapy they have to be on iv fluids and they have to be in the hospital mm. when they do it but with with dogs and cats, usually the hydrolyzed proteins are 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 well tolerated, but it, it can cause that problem. But I I usually will just do it without any, you know, no 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 changeover. That's just what I do, uh, right or wrong. It just seems like it's it's easiest thing. People still tend to mix it. You know, if they want to mix it, I'd, usually three days is plenty. You know, they do like a thirty percent increase decrease each day, and then by day four they're a hundred percent on the on the new diet. Okay, our last rapid fire question is on food trials, what are the best flea tick and heartworm preventative options to use? <laughs> yeah, so good good question. Topicals always the best uh because it's not it's it's going to be systemic if you can if you can do it, you know, that way. I have been fine using Brevecto the three month product uh-huh. because it lasts for that long. So your, tri- your trials for, you know, for two months, mm-hmm. but it's going to last for three. I- I've been really happy with it. It's also a hydrolyzed pork protein. So it's not a, not a problem. Okay. I've been happy with, with that particular one. Oh, a lot I of them are hydrolyzed yeah. as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, for heartworm prevention, to be honest, I don't really, if they're on it just one time a month, I, I have had so few dogs who are truly alert that exquisitely allergic to a uh, heart guard just for example um there's a bunch of them out there obviously you know interceptor heart guard etc cetera, etc cetera. sympericatria all that but I, I there's so few allergic to it i don't tend to worry about it too much okay you know i i say okay give you know the diet trial go ahead and start it and then if it's you know you could do non-flavored stuff there it's harder to find it that sure now. is <laughs> yeah and, and you don't want to, I mean, you don't want to necessarily do the tractor supply, get a b- big bottle of Ivamec and start dosing your dog. Like we've, we've had a lot of people do that too, but obviously you can overdo it and things. Yeah. If you don't do it, you have the right amount, but I'm not that excited about a lot of those products. I, I usually let people stay on them because the risk benefit ratio there, I feel like might be better if they just go ahead and stay on them. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Reeder, we appreciate you being on the podcast so much. Uh, before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you want to let our listeners know about veterinary dermatology? Do you have any questions? If you have any uh, dermatology 
cases you want to go over or any of that stuff, you can definitely reach out to me or uh, Dr. Wilson, uh, Laura Wilson's uh, dermatologist in our practice as well. And so, yeah, happy to do that. Uh, LighthouseVetDerm.com. You can find all our information there if you are interested in that. That would be that'd be awesome. So I, I definitely appreciate you having me on and happy to do more and, you know, another time, too. Well, that would be great. We appreciate it very much. Yes. Yeah. Great. Thank you. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And we do have a specific request. One of our long-term guests, Dr. Lori Funkin, the therapist, is going to come do an episode with us in a couple of months. And to prepare for that episode, we are asking our listeners to email us about ways that they practice resiliency in their everyday life. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at Introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.